0: Well, next Sunday is Orphan Sunday. And look at me, you don't want to miss next Sunday. And adding to that, it'll be really special. We're going to have lunch on the lawn. Daniel will give us a little bit of details about that. There really aren't many details. Just walk right over there after church next Sunday. Lunch on the lawn. I wanted to call it dinner on the grounds. But our staff, I love them. They're just too young. They didn't get it. They didn't realize that back in the day... That lunch was dinner and dinner was called supper. I tried to explain, but again, they're just too young to understand. So dinner on the grounds, lunch on the lawn. We hope you'll join us next Sunday for Orphan Sunday. Very special day. I think it'll be powerful for us. This morning uh, might be a little different. I don't want to be a preacher slinging a sermon at you as much as a pastor uh, sharing a talk and in some ways really sharing my heart. And so this message, look, usually... uh, Always we have verses on the screen and almost always we have you turn in your Bibles too. And sometimes we have you stand and read it aloud with us, something, some variation of that. But today is it's a talk and I want you to, to relax. If you want to take notes or maybe even take a picture of the screen or something that you want to capture, that's fine. But the sermon is going to be posted uh, here in about 40 minutes online and as well as a discussion guide for groups and personal reflection. So some of these the truths that you hear, some of the passages will be included in that, most of them anyway. But I'd love to have your undivided attention and your openness to what God might have for you today. So here, here's the title of this talk, Five Things I Hope for You. If we were having lunch or coffee or just sitting down one-on-one, I would want to convey these five things to you. And now here we are gathered together so I get to share them. The first is this, I hope... You have a problem, a God-sized problem. It's been said that small souls are occupied by petty problems. A shriveled, shrinking, small soul is occupied by petty problems. You believe that's true? How can I be successful? How can I be popular? How can I be secure and comfortable? How can I reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles? How can I worry about me? But this, you see, my hope for you is that God would give you a God-sized problem. If you don't have one, your problem is that you don't have a problem. I want you to know this. I want you to I want you to open your mind to encompass this very idea that when God does a work, he gives somebody a problem. When God does a work, he gives somebody a problem. Moses can't stand that the Israelites are in Egyptian slavery and captivity. David can't stand that a big old bully, before they gave public service announcements about bullying, he can't stand that Goliath is taunting the the people and intimidating them. Esther can't stand this genocide that could very well take place. Nehemiah is a man whose heart broke for a people, for his own people. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah. Years ago, it was a sermon series here. It's a great study in leadership. Even if you're not a person of faith or a believer, it's just a great a part of history. And Nehemiah, this, this occurred when the Persians had conquered the Babylonians who had conquered the Assyrians. And, Nehemiah was away about a hundred plus miles from Jerusalem and he got some news about the walls of Jerusalem being in disrepair about them being ruined ruined and that's a big deal back then there's a a family lives not far from here right here on old Canton just probably a few hundred yards from the church I've noticed a couple of times the last five or six years that a wall outside their home has imploded it's fallen down at least part of it and you know they call their insurance company nationwide is on your side and they show up and it's fixed in in a few Days, and it's probably a pesky, a pesky situation. It's, it's a problem, certainly for them, but it's not a big deal in our day for certain walls to be knocked down. But back in this period of history, a wall meant your security, a wall meant safety for your family, a wall meant you didn't have to hide the wife or the kids. That you had protection, but Nehemiah hears that something's up. Nehemiah, his occupation, you know what it was? He was a cupbearer for the king. Do you know what a cupbearer did back in those days? Some of you know this. You've studied this. A cupbearer tasted the king, in his case, the Persian king's food and drink to make sure what? That it didn't have poison. I've imagined this, Nehemiah would come home for work every day. I mean, that was, his, that was his job, to taste the king's food and drink. And I bet his wife just stopped asking him, Honey, how was your, how was your work today? He's like... I'm here, there was no poison, everything's good. Makes you wonder how they did his mid-year and end-of-the-year reviews, that's what he did. And Nehemiah was hanging out in the lap of luxury, Persian luxury, wearing the finest clothes, riding in the finest chariots, and he could have forgotten where he's from. Ever heard that expression before? It's, it's, in, it's in us, in our country today. Have you, you gotten big? Have you, have you, have you arrived? Are right, you're not successful if you don't remember where you came from, if you're not able to give back. And so Nehemiah's heart is broken. And history tells us that with his broken heart, he wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. And I don't know if it's too early in this talk to ask you that question. When is the last time you've wept or mourned and fasted and prayed for a problem not your own? Now we cry, don't we? We cry at movies, especially dog movies. We cry at weddings. We cry when children are born. We cry when children leave home. We cry when children come back home. We cry over things. I, I don't want to get in trouble saying this, but we had one of our staff members this week that was in jury duty. This person was on a jury of a capital case. And I talked with this staff person. They can't tell you anything, right? But I, I, I asked, I didn't get any information, but I asked, was it emotional? Were there tears? And you can only imagine if any of you follow this heartbreaking news from this sin-stained world that we live in. But we cry, but when's the last time you cried, wept, mourned, fasted, and prayed for problem that's not your own. A shrinking soul is concerned about petty problems. When God does a work, he taps someone, a man or woman, on the shoulder and says, here's a problem. The solution is out there, but here's a problem. Can I tell you this morning, this is my hope for you, that you would have a God-sized problem. You cannot follow Jesus in this world without tackling a problem. In Luke 4, Jesus came. He was a boy and he went to the synagogue. It says that it was his custom. Dr. Luke, the physician, in writing his gospel account of Jesus, said that it was his custom on the Sabbath that he would go to the synagogue. In this particular time as a young boy, he unrolled the scroll, the parchments of Scripture, and he read from Isaiah, I have been anointed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is upon me to do what? Anybody know? To preach the good news to the poor. The recovery of sight to the blind. Freedom for prisoners. Those who are oppressed to be released. We can get an idea of his life and his teachings. But looking at what broke his heart. And what if you and I moved away from the smallness of our own world. God broke our hearts for a problem that's in the world. That's what it means to follow Jesus. When I was in college, I heard a man speak at a Christmas conference with a campus ministry. I was with a thousand plus in a ballroom and he read from Matthew 9 where Jesus had compassion on the crowd as as sheep without a shepherd and they were helpless. And it says that this moving that he had, the seeing and the moving and the compassion that he had, we were asked the question, what if we saw as Jesus saw? What if we felt as Jesus felt? What if we did as Jesus did? My hope for you today is that you would have a God-size problem. My second hope for you today is that in a world of givers and takers and other kinds of lovers, I hope that you will be a giver. Have you noticed that we live in this world where people are so quick to take and tear down? I think it's always been true. You know, we, we read the ancient text. We talk about it. I point you often to the early stories of sibling rivalry, of murder. We said a couple of weeks ago that the stories God gives us in His Word, it's like a super dysfunctional reality TV show. You don't have to watch the Real, Wives, Real Housewives of anything. Just read this best-selling book of all time, and you'll see the, how busted and broken up we are. We So today, I think, though, what's different is there's, we have tools and we have a medium like never before to take and to tear down. So my challenge for you, my hope in a world of givers, takers, and other kinds of lovers, my hope is that you will be a giver, a giver of love. And I want you to think for a moment with me. I want you to think about love in this regard, giving back and building up. In a world that's taking and tearing down, think about giving back. And think about building up. There's a lot of uh, duos, dynamic duos in Scripture. Uh, there's also just a lot of dy- dynamic duos in Culture, fictional, factual, whatever it is. I'll share a few of these. I'll do the first part and you loudly, okay, join with me, keeping you awake. You, you fill in the blank. Batman Ann, Abbott Ann, Bonnie Ann, Hall Ann, Sonny Ann, Donnie Ann, Peyton Manning Ann. <laughs> Who said it? Brad Paisley, right there. Yeah, look, come on, y'all. <laughs> Romeo Ann. Romeo Dumb Ann. Dumb. Cheech Ann. Dumb. Beavis Ann. Dumb. Don't say it in the house of God. <laughs> Unbelievable. Wow, there are tons of dynamic duos. I'm not sure anybody will remember by name, John Muhammad and Leeboy Malvo. These two in 2002 were known as the Beltway Snipers. They wreaked fear in the heart of our nation's capital, Northern Virginia, the Washington DC area. Any of you remember this, where people were pumping gas and um, a sniper took them out? I remember the day that a child was killed by a long range sniper. That this man or this boy took him out from hundreds of yards away with a powerful rifle and a scope. I remember the law enforcement official, we had one sitting down front in the 9:30 service, but I remember the law enforcement official in particular who gathered the media that day and was weeping. And we live in a world that takes and tears down. I remember people criticizing this law enforcement official. He shouldn't get emotional when they're looking for the killers. But a child had been taken out and this guy was moved by it. But this duo was not dynamic, they were dastardly, demonic even. And what we learned in this story is that there was an 18-year-old boy. That was Lee Boyd Malvo. He was an 18-year-old boy, didn't have a father, didn't really have a mother. And when you don't have a father, you don't have a mother, you're looking for somebody. You're looking for a mentor, aren't you? You're looking for somebody that would give you acceptance. There is in all of us a father hunger. All of us. There is in all of us... A longing to be loved and accepted. And that's what happened with this duo is that this older man mentored this young man in rage and anger and ultimately in killing. Duos, I think of a duo in scripture. I think of a man named Paul who was a murderer and a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. And then God does what God can do, only God can do. He got a hold of his life. And this man, his heart softened, and he thought, instead of taking and tearing down, I want to give back, and I want to build up. And Paul did just that. In fact, the problem that God gave Paul, he had a God-sized problem. It was that the Gentiles, remember the world back then, it was the Gentiles, the rest of the world, those outside the Jewish circles, they weren't hearing the gospel. Romans 15, it is my ambition, he said. This is my problem, to share the gospel with those who don't know. That was a God-sized problem. Paul formed a few duos, and one that moves me is a relationship that he had with a young man named Timothy. How important is it to have a guide? How important it is to have somebody older that will walk with you? Friday night after a football game I, I attended, I was walking back to my truck and I heard steps, fast steps moving right toward me. And it was a young man, a 15-year-old, a 10th grader, who ran to me and with a smile ear to ear just gave me a fist bump and we, we kind of gave him manly hug and just talked and this is a young man who uh, I will be mentoring and you know what he said to me he ran out of his way when he saw me ran way out of his way just to say hello to me it was 30 seconds of conversation he turned to go back with his friends but he said I can't wait to I can't wait for our mentoring bond how good is that I think that's in the heart of people to say I want to connect and I want to grow and I want someone to help me process this thing Called life. I'm thankful for schools and churches that set that up so that we can do that. And Paul, in 2 Timothy 1.7, this will be up on the website, on the front page of our site in just a moment. But in 2 Timothy 1.6, the verse after it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. But in 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul says to Timothy, I see the gift of God in you and I, I stir it up. I fan the flames of what I see In you. Instead of taking, he's giving. To see something, to see something in somebody and call it out. That's what we need. In a world that needs love, don't subtract. Don't take, but give. What if we viewed love that way? Giving back, stirring up, and calling something out in people. Another way, that our world needs love, instead of tearing down, we need to build each other up. God himself is a builder. Psalm 127, he says, I build a house. Unless you build your house on the foundation of the Lord, you do it in vain. God is a, he's a home builder, desires to be, He desires for you to let him in, to help you build your home, whatever that looks like. God is a home builder, Psalm 127. God is a church builder. Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Abraham in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, says he went through all the pain and difficulty, the uncertainty, the not knowing that can get the best of us because he was looking forward to a city whose builder and architect is God. God is a builder of an eternity. He wants you to go to heaven and he wants you to take as many people with you as you can. What if instead of taking, you gave back? What if instead of tearing down, you built up? You saw a spotlight, one of the ministries that were joining. I've had the privilege to be on the board. Lindsay asked me, if you were here a little bit ago, Lindsay asked me to be on the board and I, I went with some level of Uncertainty. And it took about 20 minutes to hear the police chief of Pearl talk about what's happening in Jackson. And I said, I'm in. Like, I am in to see what needs to be built up. Let me ask you, what needs to be built up in our world today? What's broken? I read an article recently that talked about the family surviving. Surviving like an endangered species. Like an exotic animal that's almost on the brink of extinction. Families are broken and busted up and need to be built up. Isaiah 58, it's on the sermon guide of the personal reflection questions that you'll see on our website related to this very talk. But Isaiah 58, 12 talks about streets with dwellings, about people being at peace, about walls again being broke down, about how when we rebuild and we raise up what is broken in love... That we become known as restorers and repairers of the breach. Like, I want in on that. And my hope for you, one of my hopes for you, is that in a world of givers and takers and other kinds of lovers, I hope that you will be a giver. The third thing that I hope for you, I hope you have the courage to embrace loss in order to experience life. The word courage is carefully selected by me today. I hope you... Have the courage to experience loss, embrace loss so that you can experience life. I want to give you two words today in regard to loss because nobody likes to lose. The first word is the word pruning, the second word is the word pausing. In John 15, if you've been around me, you know that I love John 15. In some ways, I've organized my life around it. I read it when I was young. I read it and reread it and read it and studied it and memorized it. And I meditate on it a lot. And what I love about John 15, it's Jesus. And it's Jesus talking about bearing fruit and being loved. And oh yeah, by the way, he's talking about joy. But he introduces something that's very difficult for you and me. In fact, we, we oftentimes don't have the courage to join him in the work that he wants to do in our lives. And it's the work of pruning. And unless you're from the Delta have a garden or a farm, you may not be aware of this. But pruning involves cutting. It involves pain and loss. It involves cutting back so that something that is healthy can grow. It involves taking out what is not healthy, that is taking life from what could be healthy. And it's necessary Jesus, in John 15, defines the relationship. That's important in a relationship, isn't it? If you're sitting next to someone and it's kind of murky and you're not really sure where the relationship stands, that's kind of tough. But if you define a relationship, you can move forward with conviction and with clarity. In John 15, Jesus defines the relationship and he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And can I tell you that there's a couple of things that a branch can't do. A branch can't control the elements. And a branch can't survive on its own. And that's us. That's you. That's our need. And Jesus says, what you need to do, I have one thing for you to do. Stay. Abide. But how hard is that for us? Jesus says that God is the gardener. And the gardener needs to prune. Things need to be cut out so that you can grow. What might that be in your life? Look, pruning seems cruel and careless. Can I tell you that there could be a work of God in somebody's life today and it seems cruel and careless what God is doing, but it's the very thing that could give you life because something's being cut out of you. And does it hurt? Look, pruning involves blades and blood and cutting and pain and loss. But in the end, if we can embrace the loss and join Him in the work, have the courage to do so, then that's when growth and that's when life can happen? What pruning work is he doing? Can I tell you, just looking at culture, studying it and knowing us and our tendencies, for some of us what needs to be pruned is the excessive activity of life. Ecclesiastes 3, some of the greatest poetry ever written, I believe of course is inspired and it says to us that there is a season for everything under the sun. Now in Mississippi, apparently there's not a fall, straight from summer to winter. But there's a season for everything. Would you agree with that? There's a season. Again, I won't quote it on time, but just the beauty of Ecclesiastes 3 is is awesome. But there's a time for everything. And I would say for us in our modern language, we could say that there's a a going to school time. There's a, a dating season. There's a getting through college and being dirt poor season. There's a finally getting out of college and facing the real world season. For some of us, there's the establishing career season. And and for others, there's the having kids season. And I just want to say to some of you, because it's you or someone you know, or it could be you in the future, but the establishing a career and having kids stage is one of the most difficult seasons of life. Very difficult. And we see, Susan, I see so many people in that very season that are comparing themselves to other people, including their parents, and they're wanting to have it all. They're wanting to live in the same house and have the same recreational stuff and compare and compare over and over, and they want to be there. And I just want to say, in that season, because I talk to too many people after the fact, and if you overload the circuit in that season of your life, you could do irrevocable harm. So the pruning... What needs to be dropped from my life before it drops me? The second word when it deals with embracing loss so that we can experience life is the word pausing. Years ago, I read a book by a smart doctor named Richard Swenson. Richard Swenson wrote a book called Margin. And in this book, he said the following, rest is the pause that reminds us of our place and our purpose. One more time, rest is the pause that reminds us of our place and our purpose pausing like pruning in some ways seems like a loss doesn't it because we're not striving we're not seeking to achieve or accomplish we're just we've stopped show you a picture simple picture it's a chair chair in my office and you see actually two chairs there's part of one chair where some of you come and sit i'm an extrovert y'all know that I love people and I love conversation and it's more natural for me to have someone else sitting in that chair. But I relish the times when I'm in that chair, when I learn that rest is the pause that reminds me of my place and my purpose My birthday was a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night. We have a small group on Wednesday night. So that means my small group had to say happy birthday and have gifts and stuff for me. And they had cards and a cake and sang a song off key. And then they gave me part of their gift was some balloons. And then they had a little sign, a flashy blue sign that said, I'm kind of a big deal. And they're mocking me, of course. But I have that in my office, but I've sat in that chair and a couple of times the last week or so, I've looked at that and smiled and thought of them, but I've also thought, you know, I'm not a big deal. And when I rest, and only when I rest, because if you notice that if you don't work, you can't rest, and if you don't rest, you can't really work. But when I rest, I'm reminded of my place. And I'm reminded of my purpose. And I just want to say, I told the earlier group this at 9:30 listen conviction of sin in your life cannot take place at 90 miles per hour having the courage to make a change with your character and the promises that you've made and broken cannot happen at warp speed relationships get bumped and bruised when you're going 90 to nothing you and I are created this way we say it often Here, probably not enough, but there's three places, three environments, three spaces that God calls us to. The row, you're here today, you're in a row. And the circles, when we circle up with others to love one another, pray for one another, study, learn, heal together, share life together, that's the circle. But we also need the chair. And I tell you, when I miss time in the chair, I'm less of who God desires me to be. My wife knows it. My kids know it. The staff know it. Maybe some of you know it. But when I'm here, I pause. And in that pausing, I drink in his word. I let him do business with me. I'm reminded that I'm not a big deal, that I need him to work in me. And in this chair, I'm convicted of sin in my life. And in this chair, I marvel at God's wisdom and how what Jesus said about my life and yours is always the best. The fourth thing that I wish for you is I hope you experience the freedom of giving generously, saving wisely, and living simply. There are two kinds of people when it comes to money, generally speaking. There are spenders and savers. How many of you, your tendency is to spend? Raise your hand. We had a lot of proud people, uh, secretive people. Raise your hand if you're a spender. How many of you raise your hand if you're a saver, if you're more frugal and tight? Okay. Invariably, a saver and a spender will meet and get married. That's one of the reasons divorce rate is so high. A couple, husband and wife, are at Walmart and they're shopping. And the guy throws in a case of Budweiser. It only costs ten dollars. He throws it in the shopping cart at Walmart. They call it a buggy. He throws it in the buggy. She says, "What is that?" He said, "Case of Budweiser, ten dollars." She says, "Put it back." A couple of aisles over, she puts a little small jar of face cream in it. He says, "What's that?" She says, "Face cream, twenty dollars." He's struggling, And she says, it makes me look so beautiful. He said, so does the Budweiser, and it's half the price. <laughs> there are savers, and there are spenders among us. And here's the tendency for all of us. The tendency for us is just to live, live, live. Translation, spin, spin, spin. But can I tell you from the beginning that God... Uh, Created a fundamental concept called tithing, which is a literal number. It's not a legalistic, it's not a legalistic endeavor, but it's a literal number and it's a number 10. And here's what I have found. That it's better, hear my heart, it's better to give, save, and live than live, 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 spend, spend, spend. And I want to invite you, hear my heart, I want to invite you to experience the freedom that I know in this regard. Paul from Tarsus, Priscilla and Aquila from Italy, Apollos from Egypt, all came from different continents and they converged in a place called Corinth. And they talked about the impoverished needs of the world and how in 1 Corinthians, you can read chapter 8 and chapter 9 and verse 16, see some of the fruit of it, see some of the teaching. But they said essentially that everybody needs to give and everybody's gift is needed. And I started to think, what if God got a hold of us that some of you who've never given before would give for the first time, that some of you who give sporadically, not, not going on a number, not trusting what God says, but just kind of throwing some stuff in there when you feel like it, when you have some left over. When do you ever have any left over? We never do. That's why we give, save, spend, live. That one of the Thoughts there for the church, and I want to invite us to be that church is that we would excel in the grace of giving. I wonder: do you have a plan to ever be a giver? You may say, someday, I gotta get some things paid off and squared away, someday, which by the way, is a code word for never. Do you have a plan? And I would just say, in love, why would you neglect something so important at the heart of Jesus? What would it look like? Imagine, imagine what could happen here if God got a hold of us. And my heart is for you. I say this often. It's not at the core of it what we want from you. It's what we want for you to join us in a journey of generosity. I don't know if God has this word for any of you. Maybe they were all at the earlier service. But some of you, you have been excelling in the grace of giving. You are a tither and you've been a tither. I've been a tither since I was a boy. But look, for you, its not. it doesn't mean stop there. You could give sacrificially to kingdom work. And I hope that you experience the freedom of being able to do that. And if you're drowning in debt, we talked about this at staff meeting only a week or so ago. We want to help you soon. With principles, biblical principles of stewardship, and can I tell you, it is so freeing. I hope that for you. And the final thing that I hope for you, number five, is that I hope you find the power that's greater than your weakness. Years ago, I was in Wyoming, Cheyenne, Wyoming. Garth Brooks wrote a song about it. George Strait too. There was a, it's called Frontier Days, and I had an opportunity because I was enticed by. an operator, to hop on a mechanical bull. He said, in his big old cowboy hat, you know, spitting to back out the side of his mouth, say, hey, it's, it's more fun if you ride. Ain't much fun if you're just watching. So that, of course, was a challenge to me. So I get on this bull, and a few seconds into this mechanical bull ride, I'm like hanging off the side, my arms are flailing, I'm crying for my mom, a real bad look for a guy in his early 30s, just a bad look all around. I get off and I'm thinking, well, I survived. And the operator, I mean, he had a passion for his job. And he said, hey, that was only level one. I'm like, how many levels? 12. There are 12 levels. I rode I rode the first one. And here's what I want to say to you. Sometimes level one living, like it's there, isn't it? It's not that hard. It's not supposed to be that difficult. It's like Mayberry and Andy Griffin in the 1960s. It just kind of feels good. But here's what you know about life. You have your own stories, and you could preach and talk to me, but life doesn't stay at level one, does it? It gets harder, doesn't it? The job is lost. The marriage ends. The friend betrays you. The addiction that was hibernating for years wakes up and wreaks havoc on your life, and your family. And life doesn't stay at level one. You see, here's the way life is. At first, it's exciting. There's anticipation, expectation, elation. It's euphoric. It's easy to get excited about something at first. But then, later on, there's blisters, bureaucracy. There's busy work. There's bitterness. And it becomes harder. And anybody, and many of us are, feeling so weak because we're at a level of life. We're not in the, at first, we're in the later on, and later on is hard. And level 12 is throwing us around. And I pray that you find that God's power is greater than your weakness. Real quick, and I'm going to close. 1 John 3.20 says, Our hearts condemn us, but Jesus is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. One more time. Our hearts condemn us. Jesus is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. If today you are where I have been so many times, and the internal condemnation is getting the best of you, and you're weak and anemic and impotent because of it, I want to say that His power is greater, and He does know everything. He knows what's next, and He ultimately knows what you need. These are my hopes for you, all five together. I hope you have a God-sized problem. In a world of givers and takers and other kind of lovers, I hope you'll be a giver. I hope you have the courage to embrace loss in order to experience life. I hope you experience the freedom of giving generously, saving wisely, and living, living simply. And I hope you find the power that's greater than your weakness. Let's pray together.